1: Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mark Fati Masood about his new book, Sharia Inshallah Finding God in Somali Legal Politics, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Dr. Masood is currently a professor of politics and legal studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, as well as a visiting professor of law at Oxford University. Dr. Masood, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So to start, I'd like to ask a fairly general question, which is sort of how and why did you become sort of so interested in law and legal studies?
0: Yeah, I knew I was interested in the, I think one of the things that led me to law and legal studies is the relationship between um, law and society. So I wasn't necessarily interested in what the law said, as much as I was interested in what the law did. Um, When I was in college, um, one of the things I did was um, go to South Africa to study its new constitution. South Africa had this really progressive constitution that that had an equality clause that protected human dignity and equality on all sorts of levels. And I also knew South Africa was a society that just emerged from apartheid and was really conservative, multiple conservative constituencies living there. Um, And I thought, wow, how do all these various conservative groups and political um, organizations across South Africa deal with this really progressive constitution. Um, So I was interested in this gap between what the law said and where society kind of was. Um, And that's kind of what got me interested in law. Um, I eventually applied to law school and and PhD programs, not sure which one I would do, because I knew I was interested in the law, but I also knew I was interested in, um, like I said, what the law did and researching the law, not necessarily being a lawyer. I ended up doing both uh, my law degree and a PhD. Um, in order to ask, uh, as I've done throughout my career, these questions about, uh, you know, why why is it we even have legal systems in our societies? Why is why is it that we we think that it's important to have courts to help resolve our disputes? So sort of big questions that lawyers that are really active in the day to day lawyering um, activities don't get the chance or luxury to ask. Um, so I've I've kind of devoted my career to thinking about these questions. Um, these kind of big picture questions around the law, why it exists, and what it does.
1: I know your first book was concerned with sort of the intersection of law, religion, and human rights in different periods of Sudan's colonial and post-colonial history, which you know certainly has a lot of thematic overlap with your new book. So how did you kind of go from working on Sudan to then becoming interested in Somalia's history? Do you want the
0: real story or do you want the... Kind of not so real story. I'll tell you both. So the um, there's a real story and a frustrating story. The real story is my book on Sudan. This the the first book I wrote, which was an outgrowth of my dissertation, uh, and it's called Laws, Fragile State: uh, Colonial, Authoritarian, and Humanitarian Legacies in Sudan. And like you said, it focuses on it. It sort of takes um, Sudan's colonial history, its its authoritarian and democratic history. Um, social movements in Sudan, international aid and development projects in Sudan, and the ways in which all these different kinds of political actors, I guess you would call them, whether they're colonial administrators, dictators, uh, democratically inclined, parliamentary, you know, officials like prime ministers, um, aid workers, uh, women's rights activists, all these are really different kinds of people, right? Dictators, women's rights activists, aid workers, colonial administrators, they're all really different. But I found time and again throughout Sudanese history and in in my ethnographic fieldwork in Sudan, I found time and again that the one thing all of them turned to was the law. Um, They wanted to change the law. They wanted to reform the law. They wanted to create the law. They wanted to build the law. They wanted to challenge the law. They wanted to write the law in their image. They wanted to bend the law. And so law became this kind of really important tool uh, to conduct all kinds of politics, whether it's building colonialism or fighting it, whether it's building dictatorship or fighting against it, whether it's building women's rights or passing laws that that curtail women's rights. The law became this flashpoint in this nation state space, Sudan, that at the time, many kind of policymakers, scholars, and others thought, you know, why would you study law in Sudan? There's no law at all in that place. You know, it's just ending a civil war. And what I found instead is actually law was everywhere you looked in that space Um, both causing the violence, but also being the tool that people tried to end the violence. Um, When I finished that book, so that was the first kind of book project. When I finished that book, I realized that law wasn't just the only, it's not that I was missing something from the book. I think the book told the right story, but there was something else going on uh, that I thought the story from Sudan couldn't tell. And that is the story of religion. Uh, and the ways that people use religion to govern in the same ways that people in Sudan have been using law to govern. And so I realized one of the, the, the most important places to to study that would be maybe the most extreme case would be Somalia and Somaliland and the Horn of Africa. So that's what led me to that place. So that's kind of the real answer. It's the the long real answer to your question. The shorter answer is when I was working on Sudan, I mean, many legal scholars and others in the U.S. don't know various countries in africa like you know they they they'll confuse various countries in africa so when i was writing spending years writing my book on sudan many people would come to me and say hey how's that book on somalia going and i would have to tell them it's actually about sudan not somalia like these are different countries so eventually that stuck with me the more people confuse somalia and sudan so i realized maybe i should just go study somalia since everyone seems to think i'm working on it so that's kind of the not so real answer um but, but the real answer is I, I wanted to open up new questions about the role of religion in politics that my first book couldn't answer.
1: And I'm also kind of curious about how the actual work of doing the research and crafting your second book you know, compared to your first book. And so sort, of, sort of here, I'm, I'm hoping you might reflect a bit on your methods, sort of any challenges you face sort of doing this research and, and so forth. Thanks so much for asking me that question because I feel like, scholars don't talk enough about our
0: methods. Um, there are some people who are really positioned well, especially people who do empirical field work um, and they have to go overseas. A lot of those, those are people who really are concerned about methods, but I've seen so much scholarship in law that, that doesn't articulate clearly what the methods are. So I, I just wanna point out how important that question is to me, just to even think about and talk about methods. Um, Because it's important how we do our research, what influences our research. I have a paper that I'm working on now and a book project on positionality and how we ourselves and our identities impact our own research and field work. Um, uh, So in terms of my own methods, I actually used quite similar methods for both projects, partly because both projects are historical and ethnographic in their sensibility and in their focus. Um, so there are three primary methods I use for both books, for law's Fragile State and for Sharia, inshallah. The first method is historical archival research in colonial archives, primarily in the UK, but also in African context. For my first book, it was archives at the University of Khartoum um, at various aid organizations, archives housed there, um, and also archives that are not written down necessarily, but oral archives, because a lot of knowledge is transmitted orally, um, as you know from your own work. Um so I think th- that is a form of archival knowledge, um, even though it's not written down in the way that Western scholars might hope or presume archival knowledge to be. Um, so I categorize all of that as kind of historical archival research in order to understand, like, what did colonial administrations have to do or say about religion and law? And I did that for both books. Um, for Sharia, inshallah, I did archival research in Durham, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, and London in the UK, um, as well as in Nairobi in Kenya, and in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and in Hargesa in Somaliland, um, what the rest of the world would see as a region of uh, Somalia, but what the Somaliland people see as an independent country. Indeed, for all intents and purposes, they have been uh, de facto independent from Somalia for the last 30 years, since, since 1991. Um, so that's the first me- method, kind of archival research. The second method that I used in both books is uh, qualitative interviews, uh, just talking to people, but not asking them kind of where they're at with things and what they think about things, but asking them their behaviors. So talking with civic organizations, like what did you do when this law was passed or how did you fight for a certain kind of legislation or why is it you try and take cases to the constitutional court? Or why is it you didn't take that case to the constitutional court? So asking them about their behaviors, not just their psychology around the law or religious faith, but their behaviors. Um, and I think interviews are a really good way um, to do that and to generate theories that can ultimately be tested, maybe through quantitative research, but ultimately to, ge- to generate those theories rather than test theories. So I think interviews are a great method to do that, And which is why I do interviews. I think there are roughly 205 interviews for my first book. And something like 142 interviews for my second book, for Sharia, inshallah. My third method that I, use, that I used for both books um, is ethnographic fieldwork. So actually going to the places where lawyers spend their time, courthouses, going to the places where women's rights groups spend their time, uh, in the meetings that they uh, organize for other groups, in the workshops that they conduct Uh, for people who are displaced by civil war or for other civic organizations to learn about uh, human rights or to learn about the ways that Sharia encompasses human rights. So those are three really the primary methods that I use in both books. Um, You know, my work is it's data driven. It's empirical. Um, It tries to contribute to theory, but ultimately it it comes at it inductively through that empirical lens of historical research, interviews and uh, ethnographic fieldwork.
1: All right, so let's sort of get into the book, which covers Somalia's colonial history and then goes up uh, right until the present day. Uh, Let's start by providing listeners with a bit um, of context. Um, So as you kind of detail in the book, you know, for a long time, Somalia has had uh, legal pluralism. Um, uh, you know, especially sort of since the, the colonial period. So what are the kind of the different histories, sources, and methods employed by uh, the different legal systems at play?
0: Yeah. So when I talk to people in Somali and Somaliland and I asked them about the law, um, you know, I was interested in understanding the legal history of the place. And you can't understand the legal history of the place without understanding uh, colonialism's impact on the law. Um, as well as what happened pre-colonialism and how everything kind of changes, changed and shift with new machinations of, of the state. Um, so the state is a really important part of the, of the story here, the nation and how it's being built. Um, and as you said, there, there are many, it's a legally plural environment. There isn't just one kind of law. It's not just that law exists in the, in the national government um, in Somalia. There, when I talk to people uh, about what, the law was they would often tell me there were three they would often sit me down and say look there are three legal systems here that we all contend with that we all deal with that we all live with and 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 you said them rightfully the first one they said is a sharia which is very roughly and i think often inaccurately translated as islamic law and we can talk about that if you if you'd like um the second one is hair um it's spelled or um in english it would be spelled it looks like it's spelled x e e r um, which is, uh, as you said, a Somali term for custom or customary law. Um, and the third is laws that uh, everything that kind of goes around and Im- that is embedded in the state. So the national laws, the system of government, the judiciary. Um, what's interesting is when I talk to people in Somaliland and I ask them, you know, hey, people tell me about these three legal systems. Can you tell me more about that? And they would explain, you know, Sharia and, and hair, and uh, law, this kind of third uh, term. And when I asked them, well, can you describe, like, can you help me understand what each one means? When they would say Sharia, they would say Islam, or they said word, things like, this is the effective law. Um, when they would say hair, they would use words like custom, or traditional, um, or chiefs, or tribal, or clan. Um, so they didn't have too many words to describe that, but that's kind of what they used, the words they used. But then when I asked them to describe that third legal system, um, which is what many Western actors see as the most stable of these three, that's when things got pretty unstable for the Somalis I met. They used words like colonial law, international law, human rights law, civil law, continental law from Europe. One person said, what do they call this one? It confuses me sometimes. And the fact that they were conflating from their view, colonial law and international law, it all kind of looked the same. It was all kind of, foreign. So in in essence, the legal pluralism in that part of the world is these two things that are kind of indigenous, hair um, and sharia. Sharia, one could argue, was also kind of imposed as uh, the spread of Islam made its way through Africa uh, as early as the seventh and eighth centuries on the Christian calendar. Um, but the Somalis see it as indigenous, um, along with their, their indigenous customs. Uh, but then there's this third system that they see as kind of not indigenous as kind of foreign, but it is growing to have kind of indigenous characteristics as different people use it, manipulate it, um, change it, work with it, bend it for their, for their purposes.
1: Great. And since I imagine some, you know, listeners may think when they hear Sharia that, you know, Islamic law is a, a good translation sort of, why would you want to kind of push back or complicate that a bit?
0: Yeah. So um Sharia comes from three Arabic root letters that together mean, um, they signify like a, a path or a way, or uh, literally like a path to water, which which kind of indicates some kind of cleansing or, or purity. Um, rather than being something, it, it, it's not law in the sense of how we understand law um, in the US uh, or in Western countries, like do this and don't do that, like, um, a strict legal code that tells people what to do. It's more like, um, you could maybe call it more like an ethical code that guides people's behavior. Um, There are some sources for it, some major sources. One of them is the Quran, which is Islam's holy book, the kind of divine wisdom that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, The other is the Hadith, um, which is the statements and actions and tacit approvals of the Prophet Muhammad during his lifetime. But what's important about Sharia is, while it has these kind of stable sources of, of uh, the Quran and the Hadith, it's been interpreted in many different ways. Um, it has huge variation in its interpretations. Indeed, in, in, there are two different major um, schools of thought in, in Islam, um, one is Sunni and one is Shia, uh, and, and many of them occupy different parts of Muslim-majority countries. Um, and, and different Muslims practice, uh, you know, either different aspects of Sunni Islam or Shia Islam. And even within Sunni Islam, there were hundreds of different schools of thought of what would then be called Islamic law or interpretations of Sharia, um, hundreds over the centuries. These have coalesced into the four that exist today. Um, but even four suggests that there's open, you know, it's open to radical disagreement, radical reinterpretation. And Islam is not alone in this, um. Jewish Halakha does very, very similar things in terms of, um, you know, if you if you read um, the Mishnah or the Talmud, you 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 hear and see um, rabbis disagreeing with one another in their own interpretations. Um, the Christian Bible, the New Testament, can be interpreted in many different ways. It's a lived tradition, and Sharia is very much like that. Uh, it is a lived tradition, and that's why calling it Islamic law um, is a li- it feels a little too narrow for those people who see it as this broad-lived tradition that has so much disagreement embedded within.
1: Great. So now that we're kind of grounded a bit in terms of the different legal systems at play, let's discuss Somalia's complicated colonial history. Um, how were you know the sort of colonial histories different in terms of law between the regions colonized uh, by Britain and Italy, uh, the two main colonial states that kind of ruled over the Somali people.
0: Yeah, one thing I'll say about that is I remember asking people in Somaliland in particular about this. And one thing they said was to me, you know, as much as they were distraught, um, and in many ways traumatized by by British colonial rule, um, they still said at least it wasn't Italy. At least it wasn't as bad as the Italians in Somalia. Um and, and here's why they said that. They said that because The Italians kind of set up a a colonial outpost where they were trying to, as I understand it, they were trying to deal with a population explosion in Italy. And so they were actually sending people to live in the Somali coast in what's now known as southern Somalia, the areas around Mogadishu um, and further north. Um, So the Italians were settling. They were converting Somalis, Somali women to Christianity, which was the majority religion of Italian people um, and still, I think, is to this day, um, whereas the British had a little more as of a hands-off approach to colonialism. Um, it was one very much embedded in law. The British signed um, documents, and I found some of these documents in colonial archives in Oxford, actually, at the law school at Oxford, um, that they were they were called treaties. The British signed these treaties with local elders. The, I'm not sure how the British determined these were the elders, that's not clear from the treaties, but they signed these treaties effectively saying, hey, we have a military outpost across the Gulf of Aden, in Aden, and we need livestock. We need food, sheep, um, other forms of livestock. Can we trade with your groups? Um, And the Somalis said, sure, we'd be happy to trade with you, but we don't want you living here. We don't want you settling here. We don't want you marrying our wives. Um, it was very much a, a kind of interesting, kind of, a, a, or to some people maybe odd uh, protection or or overprotection of women um, that that was involved, um, or concern for women um, that a lot of these male leaders had. Um, and 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 so these treaties were signed with the British that where essentially the British said we agree to kind of not intervene, even though the British were doing exactly that intervening. By setting up local systems of government, by creating courts and local district administration offices, um, and I detail those uh, throughout the book. Um, but and and this and the Italians did something very similar in s- southern Somalia, what was known as Somalia Italiana. Um, but the but the key difference was that the Italians, to the Somalis at least, the key difference was the Italians settled, uh, intermarried with Somalis, and converted Somalis to uh, Christianity, which is something that the uh, Somalilanders in the north were very happy that didn't happen uh, in British in what was called British Somaliland or the British Somaliland protectorate
1: so your chapter on the colonial period sort of also examines Sharia as sort of a source of resistance um, you know specifically you give the case of Sheikh Hassan so sort of who was he um, and, and what does um, sort of his story kind of tell us about Sharia in Somalia more broadly?
0: Yeah, this is a story that, that every Somali person knows, but not many uh, outsiders know. Probably a lot of British people know about it, too, because he was given the moniker the Mad Mullah uh, by British uh, uh, diplomats and news uh, organizations at the time. So this is um, roughly the first 20 years of the 20th century. Um, so there was this guy, his name was Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah Hassan, and he had a lot of different roles throughout his life. He saw himself as kind of an important legal figure, authority, religious figure. He was a poet. Um, and in the late 19th century, he started helping Somalis resolve their disputes with one another, um, which the British actually appreciated um, because he was bringing peace between rival communities. So the British were like, this is great. This guy, you know, he's a, he sees himself as a leader. Um, there's some communities at war with one another, um, and he's helping them build peace. Like, who could go against that, right? It's great for the British, they can then trade. Um, But then he started speaking out against the British in the name of Islam, saying, you know, we as Somalis should not allow these people to colonize us, uh, these people who are not Muslims, to colonize us. And so he used Islam And this is documented in letters that he wrote to the British that I cite to um, in my book um, that are recorded in the colonial archives that I visited. Um, He cites to Islam what the British at the time called Mohammedan law. uh, Effectively, he cites to Sharia. He cites to the Prophet Muhammad saying, you know, there's no reason why, if everyone should be treated equally, but why some people from Europe think they ought to be higher than other people from here in Somalia. And that kind of rabble roused people. It caused them to take up arms against the British. Um, So he was a warrior as well. So effectively, it it caused one of the largest scale colonial wars that the British ever had to endure. Um, And it was fought in that northern region of the Horn of Africa, um, so labeled because the mapmakers at the time thought it resembled a rhinoceros horn uh, on the map of Africa. Uh, But it was one of the the largest conflicts the British uh, colonial, any British colonial administration ever had to endure. It lasted roughly the first 20 years of the the 20th century, uh, you know, a very long time. And it was done in the name of Islam. And what's really interesting about this episode that I found in the archives is not that Sheikh Hassan used Islam to fight against as a rhetorical strategy um, and as a firm belief as a firm belief to fight against the British. The more interesting thing for me is that the British themselves used Islam against Sheikh Hassan. They themselves promoted a different view of Islam. They brought uh, Muslim sheikhs from places like Mecca, from Sudan, uh, from nearby cities, countries, um, to try and convince uh, Sheikh Hassan and his followers that his view of Islam was the wrong one that the British view of Islam was a better one. Um, so, so even the British tried to couch their own colonial politics in Islamic terms, in religious terms, which I thought was completely fascinating. These were non-Muslims. I mean, many of them may have been, between me and you, many of them may have been atheists, even though they were, or agnostic, even though they were ostensibly Christian. Um, here they were saying, no, Islam allows us, Islam permits colonial rule. There's nothing in Islam that suggests that we cannot colonize you. Uh, Fascinating. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, I think I definitely saw some overlap there in terms of also in in Northern Nigeria, this sort of, there were attempts, you know, by the British to kind of, uh, yeah, say our version, uh, our understanding of Sharia is is the correct one and, you know, finding... Uh, you know, clerics that would kind of go along with that um, as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, some people might call it arrogant. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, it's, that's what imperialism is. It's also, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a strategy. It's for me, if I zoom out and look at it, it's, a, it's. I would call this a strategy of legal politics of using mm-hmm. kind of religion as a tool of law in order to achieve your goals. Hmm.
1: All right, so now the book kind of moves on to the post colonial period, which is sort of its main uh, focus. So, in your second chapter, you argue that the post colonial state's sort of political genesis is as much about remaking religion as it is about remaking law. So, how did you kind of come to that conclusion?
0: Yeah, I think I came to that conclusion through the the kind of painstaking, detailed historical, archival, um, and interview based work. Um, that I did. Sort of. So the the book kind of follows, as you mentioned, chronologically. Um, Sharia and Sha'allah follows from um, the colonial administration through the different post-colonial periods um, of of Somali history through to uh, 2021. So the book kind of starts with roughly the British intervention in the region in uh, the 1880s, and it ends. 30 years after Somali lands kind of self-declared independence um, of 1991 in 2021. Um, so this is kind of, I think it's roughly, you know, nearly 140 year history. Um, and, and, and yeah, I argue that the, that the post-colonial state is really around much like the colonial state is, is really about um, remaking religion and remaking law. And I think that's something I didn't do in the first book, partly because religion was not a part of the first book, um, but something I realized in the process of writing the second book that anytime people are interested in building a nation. So, Sarah, if you and I ever wanted to start our own country, we got to have a religion to base it on and we got to have laws. And I think those are two of the essential ingredients if we ever wanted to create our own nation. And I realized that by studying Somalia because I studied all the different attempts to create and recreate. Uh, the Somali nation. I think Somalia became the, the, uh, the most extreme and in many ways the world's most important case for that precisely because it has had so many contemporary attempts to make and remake the nation because the nation has collapsed. Um, and we can talk about that uh, uh, later as well in terms of its collapses. But that's why uh, I, I think the book really shares this, that the foundation of state building is, its it, it sources are religious
1: and legal. So in the 1950s, leading up to um, independence and then kind of uh, in the years that followed in the 1960s, you note that the new Somali state worked to constrain both Sharia and hair. Um, so kind of why and how did this happen?
0: Yeah, so the constraining of Sharia and hair um, really happened when Two ways, one is by democratic administrations and the other is by authoritarian administrations. So let me start with how democratic administrations. So after um, Somalia got its independence and so Somalia got its independence from Italy. Um, Actually it was a UN trusteeship for 10 years, but let's just say, so Somalia roughly got its independence from Italy. Somaliland in the North got its independence from the UK, from Britain. Um, So they were different colonies. But then um, they united. On July 1st, 1960, they united and formed a single country, which is now known as Somalia. At the time, it was called the Somali Republic. And it was a democracy. And the democracy lasted for about roughly nine or 10 years until 1969. And the democratic administrators at the time both wanted to build up state law, that kind of third prong of the legal system. Remember when we talked about legal pluralism? And we said, you know, there's Sharia and there's hair. And then there's this other amorphous thing of state law or foreign law. The Somali state both, the Somali state tried to build up that, that third category, that state law. And in the process of building it up, in the process of creating that kind of like legal unity around one legal system, um, they had to sideline Sharia and sideline hair. Um, effectively, what that meant was um, reducing the power that, that religious persons had reducing the power that religious courts had, um, trying to integrate them into a state judiciary that was quote unquote secular or non-religious. Um, even though, you know, 99% plus of the population in that part of the world is Muslim or identifies as Muslim. Similarly with Hare, the Democratic administration said, you know, this essentially it was, it was a space of legal competition. Um, there were chiefs um, what could be called clan chiefs or tribal chiefs. There were religious courts. Um, and the state was saying, hey, we want people to resolve, our, resolve their disputes with us. We wanna be just the trusted source of authority. Um, remember I told you, uh, like, I've always been interested in this question of like why, why is it we even have courts? Why is it like if, if, if our parents or our friends get divorced, they have to go to a court um, to resolve it? Like, why does the government get involved in these things? And I saw this happening in Somalia in the 1960s, getting involved in creating laws, getting which ultimately sidelined religion and family and custom and tradition. Um, and it was democratic administrations that did this. And I actually wrote a separate paper about Sudan, the ways that the, the fact that Sudan's early democracy did this very thing. So this is not unique to Somalia. This happened in many parts of the world, Pakistan, Sudan, um, this creation of a kind of secular legal system sidelined a lot of progressive Muslim jurists who believe that you can have a faith-based democracy, that you can have a religious democracy that's rooted in the values of Islam. Those people were sidelined in favor of kind of secularism. When they were sidelined in favor of like, you know, let's not have Islam in government at all, It ultimately led in the 1970s and 80s to the rise of more religious fundamentalism and extremism. Um, So that early rejection of Islam in government, of progressive Islam, led ultimately to the rise of extremism um, in places like Sudan and other places. So I wrote about this in the case of in Sudan, but it also happened, I think, in Somalia. It happened in Pakistan and other places. Um, so, So that's how democratic systems have constrained religious and customary law. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to say in response to your question about sort of how the new Somali state constrains Sharia and Hair. It's it's the democratic leaders, like people you and I would support, actually constrained religion and custom and tradition and family. And then the other people who did it were the dictators. Um the dictators also, just like the democratic administrations, also didn't want competition. If if you're a dictator, you don't want any competition in your legal system. You actually want to run a smooth operating legal system because it's something that keeps your society stable and orderly. And you don't want people protesting against your regime. You don't want people rabble-rousing, as you see that's happening in in various countries today where people are protesting against dictatorships um, or authoritarian turns. Um, in Russia or in the United States or in Sudan or various other places across Latin America, Africa, Asia. Um, So so dictatorships don't want competition. And so they also worked to constrain Sharia and and Adher to create their own laws and their own courts that people can trust in, believe in, and and work inside. Um, But they too, just before I I finish answering this question, I'll just say that they too Um, The dictators in Somalia also used Sharia to rule. So as much as they tried to constrain it, they also tried to use it to their advantage as well.
1: Well, that's kind of a segue uh, into my next question, uh, which is sort of, right, the next sort of key chronological event uh, in your book happens with the 1969 coup in which Siad Bar takes over. Uh, and you kind of, you know, detail how he works to sort of tear down the judicial system that had sort of arisen in the 1950s and the 60s. So can you kind of sketch for us a bit more kind of then what legal systems did exist um, during his rule, which sort of lasted up um, until 1991? And kind of how did they function and kind of, you know, what did it look like on, the, on a day-to-day life for, for people who lived uh, during that time period?
0: Yeah, I spoke with people who lived under the dictatorship, people who worked under the Siad Bar dictatorship. They were c- civil servants under the dictatorship, um, and they will tell you that all of these legal systems that we've been speaking about—Sharia, hair, or custom, uh, and state law—continued uh, to coexist as much as Siad Bar tried to kind of fight it out of the Somali people that they should only believe in one singular state legal system. It never worked. They couldn't trust his legal system. Some of them turned to it um In the same way that some people will forum shop in American uh, courts and and law, like they'll go to one court that may they think give them the the ruling that they want. If not, they'll appeal or go to a different kind of court system. And in, in, in legal terms, we call this forum shopping, going to different kind of courts or systems to resolve your disputes, um, uh, your dispute with another with another person or an organization. So all these legal systems continue to um, continue to exist as much as he tried to tear down. The first two, Sharia and hair, but they did continue to exist. Um, The state legal system that he tried to create was one that was rooted in um, building up a legal profession that could be supportive of the state legal order. You can have state laws, but you got to have lawyers to work in those systems. you got to have ministers of justice and under ministers and, you know, all those people who are going to work and be part of this bureaucracy. And so he helped to create that. He invested a lot of money in that which is very similar, actually, to what Omar al-Bashir did in Sudan, which I wrote about from my first book. Um, You know, these dictators were real investors in the law. Uh, And I think that's an important thing for people to know. It's not that they want their countries to have no law at all. They're real investors in the law. Omar al-Bashir in Sudan um, went through one of the the largest uh, scale investments in the judiciary in the country's history. Um, building courts, expanding the, uh, the you know the courts all throughout the country, partly in order to extend the tentacles of power of the judiciary. Siad Bari tried to do the same, um, and then they used those courts to stifle dissent they use those courts to criminalize opposition they use those courts uh, to imprison people who dare to speak out against the regime.
1: I found it an interesting parallels So like, like Sheikh Hassan in, in the colonial period during Siad Bar's authoritarian rule, you, we once see again uh, the example of Sharia being used uh, to support political resistance. So how did this come about during Bar's reign and kind of how does it compare to the earlier example we discussed regarding Sheikh Hassan?
0: Yeah, so much like Sheikh Hassan was a religious leader who fought against colonial rule, there were religious leaders who spoke out against Siad Bari's reign. And there are some complicated stories um, that, that I'm happy to discuss about the way they spoke out in particular against his, so they spoke out against his gender equality legislation. Siad Bari claimed to be a socialist ruler. Um, and in the 1970s, it was, right around the middle of the 1970s, it was the International Year of Women. There was gender equality legislation being passed across um, what today scholars might call the global South, or some people have taken back the term, the third world. Um, and throughout a number of post-colonial countries, people, uh, country, the state leaders were passing uh, gender equality legislation. And and Siadbari was no exception to that project. Um, he passed a new family law in January of 1975 um, that mandated uh, gender equality for men and women in inheritance, um, and marital dissolution or divorce. Um, makes sense, hard to disagree with it. Well, there was a group of sheikhs who did, who did disagree because they said, well, actually Islam has different rules for, especially inheritance where women um, can only inherit a portion um, of their husband's estates in part because um, there, there are specific rules why women can only inherit a portion of their husband's estates because women also inherit from um, siblings in a different way, and from parents in a different way. From uh, sons, daughters, and sons inherit differently. So they were saying, "Look, it all kind of works out equally in the end, roughly." Um, but in any event, you're, this is not Islamic. What you're what you're doing is not Islamic. We can debate the merits of their points. Uh, many people disagreed with them. Some women's rights activists um, dis- actually disagreed with these uh, male religious leaders who are fighting against Syed Bari. But some of them actually agreed with them with them and said you know i don't want i don't want to change with what islam the rights that islam provides women okay the the point being that when those religious leaders spoke out against Siad Bari's family law um, they wrote like a memorandum to Siad Bari um they spoke out in the local mosque um within a week he had he had them rounded up arrested tried in effectively a kangaroo court and a dozen of them historical records are unclear some say 10 some say 12 were executed. And they were executed fundamentally and ostensibly in the name of women's rights uh, for, for daring to stand up to the regime and say, hey, we disagree with your view of women's rights. Uh, to me, that's an example of how, whether we agree with it or not, um, whether we agree with Siad Barre's actions or we agree with the, the religious leaders' actions, to me, stepping back Um, As a legal scholar, a socio-legal scholar, these are examples of how people are using religion to resist um, a dictatorship, to resist its laws um, that are being passed. Um, And and so I share that that example in detail in in, in the book. Uh, It's yet another example of religious leaders, even though we might see it as as maybe an example of religious leaders fighting against progressive ideology, um, which Sheikh Hassan was maybe a little more progressive in that sense since he was fighting against colonialism. They're both examples of people using religious ideas to fight either dictatorship or colonialism.
1: Your next chapter looks at the really fascinating history about how after Siad Bari's state collapsed in 1991... It was Sharia courts that kind of provide the most efficient at kind of building back the state and restoring restoring order at kind of a grassroots level. So much so that they ultimately managed to defeat warlords that had sort of largely taken over, something that the UN and the US military had failed to do. Um, So how did that kind of all come about and what did the Joint Islamic Courts Council later named the ICU, Managed to accomplish.
0: So this, to me, is one of the most fascinating episodes in Somali history, which is already just wonderfully fascinating in its, its in its own right. Um, in 1991, as you mentioned, Siad, Somalia was in the midst of a civil war, and the Somali state effectively collapsed. Siad Barre fled um, to part of the world that you work in, Sarah, into Nigeria, um, where he yeah, remained. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, where he remained for the rest of his days. Um, and there was, no, there was effectively no government in Somalia. Um, there, were, there were multiple competing groups that thought they were government, but no one really had a handle on government. In that kind of vacuum of governmental power, in that vacuum of authority, someone's going to come up and say, I'm a leader, especially people with weapons. And these were what political scientists and others, even Somalis, have called warlords. They were basically warlords patrolling different neighborhoods, demanding payments if people pass through, um, you know, it, it, just payment for movement. Uh, people locked their doors, they stayed inside, and it was a really dangerous time. I talked to Somalis who lived through this time, and it was an, it, 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 quite a dangerous time to be um, in, in Somalia uh, in the period uh, between 1991, really in around 2005 or so. Um, There were various attempts at establishing order, but really the warlords were the people who had taken over, especially around Mogadishu, the capital. So in 2005, something interesting happens. Um, There had been, actually in the early 2000s, there there had been these courts that emerged uh, to help people resolve their disputes. It was really uh, to help local business leaders, um, businessmen, I guess. Um, They were largely, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, men. To help businessmen resolve their disputes, traders, um, they needed safe spaces to go and resolve their disputes. So these religious leaders came up and said, well, the only thing we can trust, the only thing we have left is Islam. And indeed, I think that's actually in the words of one of my interviewees. I think one person actually said, the only thing we had left was Islam at the time. Like that's the only thing left when everything else just kind of collapsed after Siad Bari left and the civil war and Somaliland declared its independence. Um, Islam was the only thing left. So, all, so so an Islamic court emerged. Um, I think it was at first either in, nor- in northern Mogadishu. Uh, and then after that, another one emerged in southern Mogadishu. And then in another neighborhood of Mogadishu. And then another one. And then another one. And then a couple outside of Mogadishu. And then they realized, we're actually bringing stability to the region. Not just by helping business leaders resolve their disputes, but by like preventing banditry and theft and actually bringing some of the warlords to justice as well. Um, the courts grew more powerful. Um, they had their own they called them bailiffs, but they were like small militias. they united their militias and eventually the courts took on the name Islamic Courts Union or Union of Islamic Courts um, as it's transliterated uh, from the Arabic. Um, so the Islamic Courts Union or ICU um, effectively brought stability to Mogadishu for the first time in you know 15 or 16 years. and so I talked to people, who lived through that period in 2005, 2006, 2007. And they said it was the first time they felt safe to open their doors and go out in the streets. Trash was being collected. Um, They weren't being demanded payment from warlords just across the road. Um, Services were being provided and they felt good. Now, remember what was happening, Sarah, at this time, 2005, 6, 7, in global politics. It's the global war on terror. Um, Ethiopia is a landlocked country neighboring Somalia that that had many deals with the warlords um, to access coastal areas to bring in um, goods um, through the ports in Somalia. Um, So Ethiopia had these kind of good relationships with the warlords, Um, But the warlords were losing power because the Islamic Courts Union were were kind of destroying them, basically. Um, Ethiopia gets wind of this. Ethiopia is a strong ally of the United States. Ethiopia effectively tells the United States, hey, you're fighting this global war on terror, um, also known as, for for many people, a global war on Islam. You should Mm -hmm. know there's an Islamic state burgeoning in Somalia, by the way, um, and we need to stop it. The CIA gets involved, they start refunding and rearming the warlords. Um, They rearm and refund and give the blessing to the Ethiopian military to invade Somalia to put an end to the Islamic Courts Union. So the Islamic Courts Union, within only a few months of its rise, falls, completely falls to a demise. What happens then is the most progressive, and the Islamic Courts Union is a very divided and it was a very divided and diffuse organization. There were progressive judges who wanted to see a democracy emerge. They were a little more authoritarian leaning or um, or um, conservative judges, you could argue. Um, there are all sorts of judges, just like you would have in the United States, um, uh, you know, in in, feder- in our federal judiciary. It depends on, you know, who appointed them. But similarly, in the Islamic Courts Union, there were judges from all sorts of, the, all, all parts of the political spectrum. What happened when the US used, and Ethiopia for that matter, used that blunt tool of just invading and destroying the Islamic courts union is the most progressive judges left. They were no longer safe. They were then exposed. They left, they left to Yemen, other places in the Middle East, Egypt, Sudan, et cetera, um, or or Canada or the US or Italy, they they left. What what remained were the most conservative kind of hardline jurists. And also what remained were the militias, the bailiffs I talked about, from that group emerged, uh, and they were young, um, emerged a group that called themselves the Youth um, or Al-Shabaab, which is now a widely known terrorist organization, what's been called a terrorist organization um, by U.S. policymakers, um, Western policymakers. Um, And they emerged specifically from that destruction of the Islamic courts. Union. So, to me, that's another fascinating moment in Somali history. That it was, it was in in the moment of need, in the moment of nation building, in the moment of um, maybe political emptiness. um, There's still a lot going on, uh, but political. I mean, by state building emptiness, Um, in that moment, people turned to courts. It was courts that emerged to bring stability for the first time in Mogadishu, and it was religion, religious courts. And I started doing research on early American history in the context of studying the Islamic Courts Union, um, and I found very interesting parallels, really interesting parallels, with the the founding of the Islamic Courts Union and the founding of the United States itself. Uh, So I read a book by a legal scholar. His name is Lawrence Friedman. He teaches at Stanford Law School, and he wrote a book in the early 1970s. It was nominated uh, for a Pulitzer Prize. It's called The History of American Law. And if you read it, A History of American Law, it's almost like reading a religious history of the United States. Because in the book, Friedman cites to this maxim that judges used all the time as the United States migrated westward, you know, depleting indigenous communities and becoming the United States in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, The maxim was Christianity as part of our common law. Christianity is part of our common law. Christianity is part of our common law. Over and over again, judges are justifying themselves through Christianity. And this is precisely what the Islamic Courts Union was doing in Somalia. Islam is part of our law. Islam is part of our law. Islam is part of our law. But the U.S. freaked out. Ethiopia freaked out. Uh, you know, over uh, no way they would have an Islamic state emerge. Um Especially in that moment of the global war on terror, and so the Islamic Courts Union fell, um, uh, and so this this kind of experiment at institutionalizing the rule of law through Islam um, potentially uh, that experiment was
1: destroyed. All right. So the rest of the book looks at the period from 1991. Um, wait, sorry. Just, now I'm going to redo it. Um, all right. <laughs> Pause. All right. So the rest of the book uh, looks at sort of contemporary history of Somaliland, which was once sort of British Somalia uh, and which claims to have its own state um, sort of separate from Somalia. Uh, But this is generally not recognized as a sovereign nation, despite the fact that it has its own government and legal structure. So I guess my question is kind of how has Sharia been critical to the building of the state of Somaliland, while also presenting a challenge for the state as it tries to gain legitimacy and resources from the international community?
0: Thanks for that question. I think you put it so nicely there, Sarah, in terms of thinking about how Sharia is both an opportunity and a, and a challenge for the people of Somaliland. Um, it's an opportunity, I think, because Sharia was the founding principle of, of that state. Um, When I talked to people who were involved in a series of reconciliation conferences in the 1990s that were essential to the founding of modern Somaliland, um, and I actually found the documents that enshrined those reconciliation principles, I think there were five or six different summits um, that I detail individually uh, in in one of the chapters of my book. All of those said something about uh, Sharia and Islam being the foundation of law and the foundation of peace. Um, and, and the kind of common unifying factor for the people there. Um, when a uh, constitution was written in 2001, a constitution that still lasts to this day in 2022, actually, so one of the longest surviving constitutions in the world. Uh, most constitutions only last. We tend to think of constitutions as lasting hundreds of years, like the U.S. Constitution, but most constitutions, uh, scholars have found, last maybe 10, 15, 17 years. So a little more than two decades, the Somaliland people are doing great, actually, with their constitution. But it it enshrines the principle very early on in the constitution that um, Sharia is the source of their democratic legal order. And they are, I think most policymakers, even in the West, would agree that Somaliland presents kind of the strongest evidence of democratic progress in the Horn of Africa region um, and has for the last 30 years. That said though, Somaliland is not recognized by the United Nations or most other countries in the world um, as an independent nation. Um, I don't think that's because of its uses of Sharia. I think that's more of a geopolitical issue around if if a new country emerges um, and it's recognized, then what happens when new countries might emerge all over Africa and then Africa will be a series of, hundreds and hundreds of different nations. and that's hard for the international kind of legal community to fathom that idea. And so Western policymakers have sort of pulled back on recognizing Somaliland, um, even though it is, you know, for all intents and purposes, probably the most stable, uh, one of the most stable parts of, of that part of the world, that region of the world, the horn of Africa. Um, so Sharia both presents, um, uh, uh, an opportunity, as, as, as you said, but also potentially this challenge because um, recognizing it would mean recognizing uh, uh, an Islamic state, which we saw in terms of the global war on terror. That's not something the U.S. has been readily, readily, readily interested and able to do.
1: The final chapter of the book examines the use of Sharia by Somali activists uh, for women's rights. As you know, these activists kind of find themselves um, in a tough spot. So sort of like on the one hand, affiliating too closely with international human rights organizations risks them losing legitimacy at best, at worst, you know, it risks making them a target of extremists. So they've sort of strategically tried uh, to work with sheikhs, uh, which then risks alienating the international NGOs and their donors. Um, and many of the activists you know kind of admit, that working with the sheikhs hasn't sort of always been easy. So I wonder whether you see this as an example of the limits of law and legal systems in general, um, and if there are kind of other avenues outside of law and politics, like the arts or media um, that these activists have turned to. Um, and here I'm thinking about a story I heard on NPR a while back about an American idol style show in Somalia, so not Somaliland, but in, in Somalia um, in 2013, which was funded by the UN um, in which both sort of men and women participated. So I'm curious if there have been kind of similar efforts at cultural change, whether backed by foreign aid groups or not in Somaliland. What I've seen, uh, so I, I, I don't, I haven't seen this American American
0: Idol style show. I think that that's uh, fascinating to think about. That's great, um, but I think what the, the e- efforts of women's rights activists, whom I met, show both the the potentials and the limits of both law and religion, or this combination of law and religion. Um, the women's rights organizations were trying to get uh, local religious leaders, who are overwhelmingly men, um, on board with the idea of protecting women's health, of curtailing um, uh, forced marriage or uh, marriage of young girls, or this practice of female genital mutilation or female genital cutting, which is common throughout this region of the world. And if religious leaders could speak out against these practices of forcing young girls to get married at a young age, of of, of uh female genital mutilation, if they could speak out against these practices, then, then people might stop those practices because people trust religious leaders, because they trust Sharia. As one person told me, uh, people trust Sharia more than any other law. Um, they trust Sharia. And so it matters. Um, and when I spoke with some of these women activists, they told me, you know, they, they, they meet with sheikhs and a lot of sheikhs will agree with them privately uh, about um, the women's concerns. Um, that Islam supports women's bodily health and and encourages, uh, won't, won't, doesn't encourage kind of child marriage. They'll agree privately with the women activists, but publicly they may say something a little different. Um, and so politics intervenes. Um, and so I see what you're saying is maybe if law and religion have the potential to change, but also they're extremely limited um, because they're, you know, especially when it comes to gender, then maybe there are other areas um, of cultural change, the way I saw that is when women activists were using Quranic uh, principles and statements and actions of the Prophet Muhammad to say uh, to ensure that people to take um, smaller steps, maybe not a big kind of flashy American Idol type event, but to remind people, remind local parents that hey, don't forget to send your girls to school because remember the Prophet Muhammad himself educated girls and boys and you want to follow that example of the prophet so if you have daughters you should educate them too and follow and 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 organizations women's rights organizations put up uh, posters in the city center that said with the with the african and and religious proverb that says if you educate a girl then you educate a nation you know like if you educate a girl she will then go out and educate family members and others and then ultimately your nation will be more intelligent if you remember to educate girls not just boys Um, So a lot of this comes in education. A lot of this comes in sports. A lot of it comes um, in political change, encouraging women to stand for office and run for parliament. Um, So that's where I saw some of these, where these activists are turning their attention, politics, sports, um, and other areas of culture.
1: And another kind of interesting echo of the past here is just sort of similar to how the British brought over sheikhs from, from Mecca to kind of help lend legitimacy to their own interpretation of Sharia during the colonial period. Some of these women activists have considered bringing over more moderate sheikhs from outside of Somaliland, even from the United States, um, to help support their cause. So I wonder, what does this kind of case suggest about how globalism and the ability of kind of anyone with an internet connection to get access uh, to a range of Islamic scholarship um, is sort of perhaps influencing Sharia?
0: Yeah, I think that's a hugely important question about the role of globalism um, because it's so contemporary and it's so fast moving. I mean, I, I, I met and the, the, the important sheikhs who are active in Somaliland, uh, both give uh, sermons uh, publicly. Uh, they also do it on the radio, and they also share their knowledge um, on YouTube. Many of them have YouTube channels. Some of them are on social media. Um, so so it's true. Anyone with an internet connection can get access to a range of Islamic scholarship. I met uh, women activists, uh, women leaders who... Um, uh, sort of social cultural leaders who um, knew some of the important sort of uh, thinkers, Muslim thinkers in the United States in Europe, what they were arguing, what they were saying. they' would seen their talks on YouTube. um they had connected with some of them via like Twitter chats. Um, and And some of them even told me that, you know, as as conservative as our re- male religious leaders are here, um, we wish we could bring some of these more progressive male religious leaders um, here to. Um, our part of the world, to kind of share their ideas and thoughts. Um, whereas I was thinking, you know, these women themselves, to me, um, and I feel comfortable saying this, These to me, a lot of the, a number of the women I met, I would classify, um, if I may do this, I would classify them as sheikhs or female religious leaders, um, as as we do in Sudan, where I come from. Sudan, I wrote my first book on Sudan, but I also come from Sudan, And there, women are widely understood to be well-known religious leaders, um, Islamic scholars, um, jurists of Islam. Um, But I think because of cultural difference, it's not that Sudanese people are any, you know, like less Muslim or worse Muslims than Somalis. Um, It's just different. It's just culturally, politically different. In Somalia, Somaliland, it's just less culturally appropriate for a woman to be seen as a religious leader. But to me, these women are religious leaders i don't think they need to bring in this age of globalization men to kind of you know tell them what to believe it's it's um it's a matter of society being able to accept their views as um as religious views and indeed the prophet muhammad entrusted um islam to um women and men um one of the key um earliest kind of um archivists of islam was the prophet muhammad's um Uh, family. uh, uh, The women in his family were some of the key earliest archivists of Islam, maintaining uh, uh, the religion in its earliest days. Uh, So so women have been important and essential uh, since the founding of Islam, and they are also in, in
1: Somalia, Somaliland as well. One of the the sort of overarching themes of the book, which you've kind of already brought up um, a bit, is that you often note sort of similarities between Sharia and the place of Islam and Somali legal structures, uh, with that of legal structures based in sort of the so called West, um, as well as elsewhere um, in the world, which have been informed by different religions, you know, sort of whether Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, et cetera. So sort of based on your research, under what conditions do you find that religion is particularly important uh, in terms of adding stability and legitimacy to a given legal system?
0: I'm not sure religion actually adds the stability and legitimacy. Sometimes it does. I, th- I think it's more important for me to say that people are trying, that people are trying to use religion and law or this combination of religion and law. Um, in order to add stability and legitimacy to the legal systems that they develop. Whether it's colonial administrators, whether it's um, dictators, whether it's Democrats, whether anyone who's trying to build a state um, or get people on board with their ideas, um, claiming that those ideas are sanctioned or approved by God um, or by religious faith is really important. Or claiming that they're allowed by a constitution, permitted by uh, a governing document. Uh, by law, is also really important. Um, and 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 you see this uh, throughout the world. And in, in uh, the conclusion of my book, um, I think more broadly than the case of Somalia and Somaliland or even more broadly than Islam um, as a religious faith itself, I consider Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism in India and the ways that um, different people have used those religious faiths to fight for what they believe in. Whether it's causes um, that lean more progressive or causes that lean more conservative on the political spectrum, the fact is that religion is kind of everywhere. But in today's day and age, I think we often see, especially in the West, that it's either conservative religion versus progressive secularism. And I want to resurrect, and I use that word purposefully, I want to resurrect that category of progressive religion as well. Which, you know, to religious scholars is not new, but I think to a lot of political scientists and legal scholars uh, and policymakers, we've often we've reached this uh, polarization of conservative religion versus progressive non-religion. And I think there's there's a missing area there. And that's what my book really tries to bring out.
1: Building on this a bit. One of your key arguments in your conclusion, um, which, you know, in a sense, sort of the whole book seems to be leading towards, is this idea that kind of the rule of law is actually quite similar to theology. Um, As you put it, uh, quote, like a parallel God, law demands that citizens submit to its will, unquote. Um, so sort of what is at stake for you in making this argument? And do you see any limits to this resemblance between law and theology?
0: There's a lot at stake. And <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm not sure I see. Um, I mean, there are, let me say this, there's a lot at stake. Uh, and I think the, it's important to think about the connections between law and theology. And I'm not sure uh, how limited those connections really are. They are vast. Um, and that's part of what I try and do in this book. So this is a book written, I, I like to think that I wrote the book um, for scholars, students, for the interested public. Um, it's not a trade book in the sense it's not written for it to be super broadly accessible, but I wrote it in, in I like to think in clear, simple, direct language um, that people can understand and that scholars can see clearly that Religion and law may not be as separate as we think merely because we study them separately, that religious studies departments are different from law schools and divinity schools are different from law schools. The projects of religion or theology and the projects of law is, demand a kind of faith, faith that, and submission, uh, that there is some kind of higher power out there that we believe in and that we trust can make us better as human beings and as societies. Whether that higher power uh, is is a deity like God, um, or whether it's like a constitution or a, a political belief like democracy, the idea is there. The fundamental idea of submission to that power um, is is common. It's not unique to law and it's not unique to theology. It's common to both, and that's what I try and reflect on in the conclusion of the book. And that's really the central kind of scholarly purpose of my book, um, to tell scholars. Um, that the ways that we envisage, excuse me, theology and law, especially the ways that we build the rule of law um, as a submission to a higher legal authority are very similar to the ways that priests and rabbis and imams build religion as submission to a higher divine authority.
1: All right. Now that we've kind of gone um, through the book, uh, and I agree it, it is written in a way that is sort of, you know, accessible, I think, to kind of a number of different audiences. And so kind of on that note, I was wondering if you might kind of reflect uh, a bit, you know, you've already done this already a bit, but kind of what do you see as sort of its key contribution to sort of the field of legal studies versus its sort of key contribution to the field of Islamic studies Uh, versus sort of its key contribution to kind of human rights policy or sort of NGO type uh, potential readers. Um, And then finally, its key contribution to the scholarship on Somaliland. And of course, uh, (laughs) it's fine if these contributions um, overlap a bit, but I wonder if you sort of see different aspects of the book um, speaking more to different audiences. Yeah, I think the book, the contribution it makes to kind
0: of all of those areas is for people in all of these areas to think more seriously and critically about the ways that religion and law shape our nations uh, and the attempt to separate religion from law um, are, in a sense, a, 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 a way of building a new form of politics that the that are built on religion, but try and isolate and remove religion from the process, even though religion is the very foundation. So part of what I'm trying to say to people in African studies, to people in human rights and public policy, people in Islamic studies, people in legal studies, to all these people is the way that religion and religious discourse and religious faith forms the very foundation for how we build nations and how we build the rule of law, this idea that no one is above the law. That no one is above God, that no one, there is no higher power than God, the law, or some authority that's non-human that's out there, whether it's the written document or the divinity, the divine. Um, And separating that out, this process of secularism, of separating religion from nation, um, may actually be the cause of more conflict than the resolution of it. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, Dr. Massoud, I think we've taken up uh, enough of your time. But before we end, I'd like to sort of ask you one more question, um, which is sort of what are you currently working on or what do you kind of plan to work on next?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. So um, one thing that I've been working on for a while is a project uh, currently called Sharia Revoiced. Um, You can find it on shariarevoiced.org. And it is a project based on uh, largely interviews and some field work with Muslims across the state of California um, who are experiencing and living uh, these ethical principles of Sharia in the context of this wider vilification of Sharia in the United States. Um, Nearly all 50 U.S. states have introduced bills banning Sharia. There have been more than um, 200 different anti-Sharia laws that have been introduced across the U.S. Um, American senators have called Sharia evil and incompatible with U.S. law. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has uh, twice ruled Sharia to be incompatible with human rights, uh, but Muslims in the United States are are living and experiencing um, both this kind of Islamophobic understanding of Sharia, but also um, their own attempts to learn and understand and grapple with Sharia. And so uh, I'm working on this book project with uh, Professor Kathleen Moore. She's the former chair of the Religious Studies Department at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And she and I have been working on this project for a number of years now that's culminating towards a book um, revoicing Sharia and trying to understand uh, both the place of Sharia in constructing Islamophobia and Muslim American
1: responses to it. All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. Um, Thank you so much for doing this interview.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.